If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. One, understand storytelling principles. Two, see how other writers have applied those principles. And then three, use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for middle grade and young adult stories, spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched wild so that we can study forces of antagonism. This 2014 film was directed by Jean-Marc Vallée from a screenplay by Nick Hornby based on the book by Cheryl Strayed, and it's her memoir. Of course, there will be spoilers, because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page and scroll to the bottom. It's as simple as that. Alrighty, Melanie, let's kick it off. (laughs) What is the genre? <laughs> well, you know, I so I know we I think we've got different ones this week, which is always interesting. So I've got for the global genre a worldview education story. And I chose that because Cheryl's life went from meaningless to meaningful, particularly in the in the movie, or that's how I interpreted it. it. Um, the secondary genre genre I had has an action and I thought it was trying to be a person against nature. M- story but I I don't think that really worked very well but that's what I thought it was trying to do but so what did you have this week well we agree on the secondary genre I also think it's an action adventure you know environment story which is person against nature but I also think it doesn't work particularly well now for the global genre I can see where you're coming from I I really looked at a lot of different genres and the problem that we're going to discuss at length is that this movie doesn't really work. So because it's not really working, it's not going, none of the genres are going to really fit very well. So while you have it as an education story, I get that. I see it as a redemption story. And the reason I came to that is because at the beginning of the show, Cheryl is a train wreck of a person. (laughs) And um, by the end of it, she seems to be getting her act together. And I also picked redemption because of her object of desire, her want for the story, which is to, quote, become the woman my mother raised. So now that said, it doesn't quite fit a redemption story. Um, But, you know, either way, we're both saying it's a global internal genre. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, that's a good point. And I'm like, I was like you too. I think I just landed on the one that the global genre that made the most the most sense to me because it yeah I really struggled trying to work it out but I did think it was very much an internal genre as the global so that's a probably a really good point to draw out all right I just want to let everybody know that I have not read Cheryl Strayed's book so please keep this in mind when I'm analyzing the story Um, But I do think that this is another story where you may need to understand what's going on and you would have a better idea of that if you've read the book. Perhaps that's a bit of an assumption, but I'll I'll just put that forward. 
So in this week, I was really hoping to explore a person against nature story because an inanimate force is really the only force of antagonism that I haven't dug into this season. Um, But I'm not sure if nature was a big antagonist for Cheryl because most of her battle was an internal battle with herself. And that that's sort of reflected, I suppose, in us both choosing a global genre, internal genre. The PCT um, looks like a gruelling walk, and I think walking 1,600 kilometres is an impressive achievement. The challenges Cheryl faces on the ETC did not seem extreme to me, But when I thought about how unprepared and how inexperienced she was when she started, I do realise how daunting some of those challenges must have been for her. But I never, ever in this story got the sense that Cheryl couldn't overcome those physical challenges thrown up by the environment. Um, And, you know, and it really fails in that way because a force of antagonism in a story must make the protagonist face their biggest fear. If they don't face it, they won't resolve their inner conflict, which will help them overcome that fear. So Cheryl's biggest fear is not front and centre in this story. And I've guessed that Cheryl's biggest fear is trying to find meaning in her life without her mother. But throughout the movie, that's in flashback. And so is the fallout of Bobby's death, so her mother's death. And I think that this is a significant flaw in the storytelling of this movie. So nature as a force of antagonism doesn't force Cheryl to face her biggest fear. So Valerie, I'm really keen to hear what you thought about nature as a force of antagonism in this story. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head here, Melanie. Nature is supposed to be a major force of antagonism, but it isn't. Now, there are other antagonists, like some of the people that she meets on the trail. But the problem here, let's stick with with nature as a force of antagonism. But this applies to every point of potential conflict, every antagonist that she comes across. Every time Cheryl comes close to having to deal with conflict, the conflict resolves itself very quickly And the tension drains from the story. Now, one example is the rattlesnake. There wasn't one second in that little bit that I thought Cheryl was really in danger. Sure, yes, she is caught unawares by it, but she steps around it easily enough and goes on her merry way. The weather was also a force of antagonism, but again, it wasn't set up well enough to make me think that she was ever really in much danger. We don't see her suffer enough from, for example, the heat in the desert. We don't see her suffer from the lack of water. So she comes across water and she's got her tablets. And, you know, if she had lost her tablets or if, um, I don't know, they didn't work or if the two guys who came upon her stole her water, stole her tablets. Now, now you have conflict. But none of that happened. We didn't see her suffer from the snow or the rain either. She came upon the snow and she's wearing shorts So potentially that's uh, a problem. However, she pauses, puts down her backpack, pulls out her jogging pants and her rain gear, and off she goes again. There's never really that much of, of a problem. Now, like I said, there are other potential forces of antagonism in the film. Like the men are on the, on the various men on the trail are an example. The bottom line here 
And this is a fundamental storytelling principle. If you remember nothing else about today's show, remember this, a story must have conflict. If your story doesn't have conflict, it doesn't work. There's no tension, so your reader will get bored and will wander away. The antagonist's job is to make the protagonist change. So without an effective antagonist, nothing happens. Your protagonist might be the most important character in your book, but you know what? Your antagonist is the second most important. The forces of antagonism in this movie just don't pull their weight, and they have to in all of our stories. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I would just add on to the conflict comment that you make, um, that the conflict also has to make sense in the context of the story as well. So, and that's where your force of antagonism comes in. They have to be meaningful to the protagonist in a way that moves the story forward. So I absolutely agree with what you've said there. Now, (laughs) I'm going to... That this this I think this movie was problematic for both of us this week, and a lot of it has to do not only with the forces of antagonism, but the the, the way the story is told, where information is delivered, and I particularly had trouble with the timeline. Now I know that the timeline was all over the place because the movie was trying to replicate Cheryl remembering things while she was walking the PCT. However. I watched this movie and I thought about the inciting incident and the challenges or the forces of antagonism that Cheryl faced and I realised that Cheryl's memories, which are told in flashback, hinder the the storytelling because it actually deprives the audience of understanding why the story is being told. And that is a, that's a pretty fundamental flaw in my view in the way the story is structured and the information that you get and when you get it. But the overall treatment of the timeline was problematic. We had no sense of why Cheryl was on the PCT, why she had been so unfaithful to hus- her husband, why she was taking drugs and so on and so forth. The piecemeal treatment of what I considered was the first half of Cheryl's story was incredibly disorientating. We learn about Cheryl's unwanted pregnancy at 39 minutes into the movie and we don't really know why she's in this position and then we find out that that event happened actually after her mother died but we don't find out her mother died until the one hour and six minute point which is really at that point is where Cheryl's life started to spiral out of control and that's well way past the middle point of the movie. Um, But until those points occur or until we understand that, Cheryl's rationale for working the PCT was really lost on me. I did not understand why we were just not privy to that, to those key pieces of information because I really would have would have helped me anchor my understanding about why the story was being told and why the memoir was so important. So in a story like this where the protagonist is her own enemy, so it's a very internal character-driven story, then I propose that we really do or the audience really needs to understand what's going on and what happened to, to, to create the situation where the protagonist is at war with herself. So, Valerie, I think we both had difficulty understanding why this story was told in such a disjointed way. Did you want to add something to the comments that I've just made? 
It's interesting because we actually have many of the same comments this week. And for those of you listening, Melanie and I study the story separately all week and we come up with our own notes and then we come together here on the show to record. Uh, and sometimes we're to in totally different paths, like with The Invisible Man. I still think it's a thriller. <laughs> um, and other times we're, we're remarkably similar in the comments that, that we have. And this is, this movie is one of the instances where a lot of what I have in my notes is a lot of the same as what you have in your notes. So I watched wild when it first came out and honestly, I couldn't get through it. I really couldn't. And I have the book, but I haven't finished it. It bores the bejeepers out of me. So when I revisited the movie for this week's episode, you know what? I still couldn't get through it in one episode, in one sitting. I couldn't. It took me three sittings to get through it. Now, why? Why is that true? It's because nothing is happening here. And yes, Melanie and I have slightly different opinions about what the global genre is. But we do both know that it's some kind of internal, uh, global internal genre story. And that means that the story is primarily about the change that happens within the character. And this is the stuff of memoir. And this is the stuff of women's fiction and quiet, you know, quote unquote, quiet stories of all genres. The trick to getting these kinds of stories to work is this. Something in the external physical world has to be happening in order to make the change occur within the character, within the character's personality or thought process or spiritual world or something like that. It's what's happening in her world outside that makes her see things a different way or makes her want to be a better person. So if there isn't anything happening on the outside world, if there isn't a lot of tension and conflict out there, the character isn't going to change because of course it's the antagonist who makes the protagonist change and it's the antagonist getting in her way and causing the conflict and causing the tension. And honestly, we don't ever get to see the change in Cheryl. There is a brief voiceover in the last few minutes that tells us she changed, but we don't get to see it. Now we've been on that foolish trail with her for two hours <laughs> and we're there to find out if she makes it, and how the journey impacts her. That's the central dramatic question of this whole story. And a central dramatic question is the question your reader is reading the book to find out the answer to. So in a love story, it's um, in a romance, they already know how that the lovers are going to get together. So they're reading the book to find out how they get together. In this case, in Wild, we are reading the memoir or watching the movie to find out how this journey impacts Cheryl Strayed. And we, the audience, deserve to see that change happen on the screen. I don't know why they robbed us of it, unless they just ran out of time, because they are limited to about two hours. So there are so many things that don't work in this movie, and it, it really does bug me. This is the kind of story that people think they're supposed to watch and like. It's the kind of memoir that people think they're supposed to read and love because they think everybody else is reading it and loving it or watching it and loving it. 
the memoir did sell quite well. I mean, it hit number one on the New York Times list. And Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern both got Oscar nominations for their roles. But because of these sort of third-party credentials, so many people are frightened to death to look at a movie like this and say that it stinks. <laughs> you know, now I am a big fan of Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern. I, I really am. But from a writing perspective, this movie simply does not work. And it doesn't work for a whole bunch of reasons that all boil down to the fact that the fundamentals of storytelling are not in place. Yep. Yep. I'm not afraid to say I didn't like it. <laughs> Um, I, like you, I struggled. I watched it and I was uh, like, found myself going off and doing this thing and then going doing this thing. And it was, it was a bit of an effort. So, you know, and I think actually that's really like, that is a gut feeling of which I think we both use this week to kind of go, well, why, why is it that we are more than happy to not stay engaged with this, with this story, which is what, you know, which is why we've now put that on in our scripts and where it actually provides really good content, I think, for the podcast. But <laughs> I didn't want to go on this week and summarise my frustration with Wild. Um, but I had another, another interesting experience this week um, you know, I was watched Wild. I also watched a, another. I watched another story, and also was listening to a book this week that really helped me clarify why the forces of antagonism matter and how they build a relationship between the reader and the story. So now I'm going to go a bit wide of the movie Wild, but follow me. I think I think it'll be worth it. So this past week, I watched the movie Star Trek Beyond. And it was disappointing because the antagonist had no reason for what he was doing right up until the end of the movie. And the, the antagonist in this was a character called Kral. So Kral knew, so we all knew, and Kral kind of made it very clear in the story that he didn't like the Federation and those people who represented it. But there was no reason why. So Krull wasn't a monster like potentially those in a in a horror story as an as far as an antagonist goes. So there must have been a reason behind his actions. Now it was interesting to me while I was watching this to see how the lack of a reason with this particular antagonist impacted my feelings about the story and and the interaction that I had with the story by not knowing what it was that he wanted. And I also was listening this week to the audiobook The Grey Man by Mark Greeny. Um, now, I wanted to, to read this story before I watched the Netflix movie. Um, not that I'm expecting a great movie and, and I just wanted to understand the difference between the two stories and how they were told. And, yes, this is what a story nerd does for fun in their spare time. <laughs> right. So I also wasn't expecting a, a well-written, tightly plotted book either, and that's just as well. But here's what I learnt from this story. So Lloyd, the antagonist, has a very weak reason for his actions, and the nicest thing I can say about it is that his motivations are unconvincing and overused. So what did that do? Well, I really didn't care for the protagonist either. So the protagonist is a character called Court Gentry in, in the actual book. I think his name changes in the Netflix movie, but I'll call him Court for this podcast. 
The challenge issued to court by Lloyd was nothing new and was nothing that the world's most elusive assassin that everyone has heard of, by the way, could overcome, especially if he's anywhere as good as what his legend suggests. So the only reason I stayed listening to this book was that the story became interesting when Court had something to care about, a reason to fight Lloyd, and when Lloyd, and this happened when Lloyd threatened Court in a meaningful way. So Lloyd kidnapped twins, twin girls, who Court had once protected, and when Lloyd threatens to kill the girls to try and lure Court into a trap. So that is where Court becomes interesting as a protagonist. And I wanted to know if Lloyd will actually attempt to carry out his threats. And so the imperative or the stakes for court became really clear and he needed to be able to stop Lloyd from killing the girls because that was actually court's worst nightmare. So he could face down whatever assassin teams that Lloyd kept throwing at him and he had to do that to get to the girls to see and so that we could see how and if he actually stopped his worst nightmare from occurring. And so my realisation was the forces of antagonism really make the reader care. A reader can relate to the protagonist because they can relate to the challenges that they face. If the force of antagonism is small, then the care factor for the reader will be small. If the reader doesn't know what the force of antagonism is, what the protagonist must rise up against, then there is no why. Why is this story being told and why should the reader care? A good antagonist creates a bond of empathy between the reader and the protagonist. A good antagonist creates tension in the reader if the reader has to try and decide between understanding the antagonist's rationale and also agreeing with it and also then supporting the protagonist. So that there's that conflict, it's that tension of, well, which side do I really want to be on? And you feel that when you have an antagonist that has a rationale that you understand, as well as a protagonist that they're fighting to, that's fighting against that particular antagonist. A good antagonist makes the reader experience the power differential between them and the protagonist. The forces of antagonism an author chooses will depend on the story's genre. If the reader can understand the antagonist's point of view, like we saw in A Few Good Men and Bend It Like Beckham, or if we can experience the power differential between the antagonist and protagonist like we saw in The Invisible Man, then we experience the story. If the force of antagonism doesn't make the protagonist face their fear or provide a strong challenge, then the story is weak and the reader's engagement with the story is weak. So after a season of studying the forces of antagonism and experiencing three stories missing a strong force of antagonism this week, here's my proposition. We can only feel the emotion of a story if we understand the tensions between the protagonist and the forces of antagonism. The reader must be able to relate to the antagonist the protagonist and the power struggle between them in order to care and therefore feel the story. So 
That's my takeaway. So, Valerie, I hope you had much better luck identifying the hero's gift expressed in Wild than I did in trying to understand the forces of antagonism. Uh, Well, no, I didn't. (laughs) So in several previous episodes this season, I've outlined how this whole concept of the hero's gift works and how it's expressed. One of the things I've repeated over and over is that the hero's gift must be referenced in the first 10 minutes of the film or the first 10 pages of a novel. Better still, if we can do it in five. So here's how the first 10 minutes of Wild breaks down. Cheryl checks into the hotel and packs her bag. Everything is new and she can't lift the bag. This is a great bit of physical comedy, by the way. I don't think it's supposed to be, but it is funny to me. Uh, Cheryl calls some man, we don't know who it is, and he says that he's sorry she has to hike a thousand miles. We don't know why she has to hike a thousand miles. We know that Cheryl is looking for her brother, but we don't know why. And we know she's hiking the PCT, although we're not told what that is. There is no evidence of any gift. There is no evidence of Cheryl's object of desire. And these are major structural storytelling problems. Let me just digress for a quick second and talk about the object of desire. Now, this is the character's want or need. In other words, what is it that the character wants and who does she have to become to get it? This is storytelling 101. It's imperative that you know this about your protagonist and that you work it into your story in the first 10 pages. It's one of the key ingredients your story needs if you're planning to hook a reader. Now, at about the 40-minute mark, we do eventually find out what she wants, and that's to become the woman her mother raised. And she feels that she does accomplish this by the end of the hike. But thanks to the voiceover in the last couple of minutes, we actually learn that it wasn't the hike that made her become the woman her mother raised. Here's the, the voiceover quote. Cheryl says, It took me years to be the woman my mother raised. It took me four years, three months, and seven days to do it without her. After I lost myself in the woods and the grief, I found my own way out of the wilderness. So the hike is simply a metaphor, just like the backpack is a metaphor. All right, back to the hero's gift. What is Cheryl's gift? Well, I haven't got a clue. (laughs) Maybe it's tenacity. I thought about that, but if it is, it hasn't been developed properly. I mean, does she have a history of quitting things? We know she has a history of self-destructive behavior, but that doesn't necessarily equate to quitting and doing this hike. If she sticks to it and doesn't quit, even though people say, you know, her friends say to her that she can quit, it doesn't mean that she's going to come out the other end and abandon all the self-destructive behavior. And if it is tenacity, then she isn't being tested well enough to reveal it or to make us think that it's a particular gift. Lots of people hike that trail. They're more experienced hikers. They can do it better and they can do it faster. So many people hike that trail, in fact, that there's a whole book about it. And there are stops along the way to accommodate these hikers. She isn't any more tenacious than anyone else on that trail. And she certainly is not a better hiker. Contrary to what she says twice, she doesn't know the first thing about hiking. 
Her gear is new. She's only hiking five miles a day. She's carrying too much. She has the wrong boots and the wrong fuel. She doesn't know anything about uh, the snow having covered part of the trail. If it weren't for some of these other uh, characters that she meets along the way, you know, she'd be doomed. And in fact, it would kind of be nice to see her doomed because that would create conflict and that would create a hole that she would have to crawl back out of. And now that's a story that I want to watch. Melanie alluded already to the flashbacks. And I want to talk about that for a minute, because this is where I see the biggest problem for Wilde. I think this is the the root of all the evil. (laughs) Wilde, and I'm talking about the film here, it's a non-linear story that does not work. The A story is the hike. The B story is the flashbacks. Now, here's how you make a non-linear story work. The A story is the main plot line. The B story is all the flashbacks and flash forwards. The A story needs to work all on its own. The B story then simply adds color and depth and richness. It's exposition. And while it can be a very effective tool, when not used properly, it quickly ruins the whole story. In Wild, the A story doesn't work, period. Cheryl's all is lost moment happens in a flashback. It's when she finds out uh, that she's pregnant and she resolves to be the woman her mother raised. Now, I have to say, I don't even know what that means. I really don't. It's, it's bad language because it's not clear in the story what that means. Cheryl doesn't have an all is lost moment on the trail. That's a problem. Yes, after the kid sings, a beautiful little child sings this gorgeous song in this crystal clear voice. Yes, after that, she drops to her knees and cries. And I think this is supposed to be the all is lost, but it hasn't been set up properly. And it's anticlimactic, boy, let me tell you. When it happens, we don't care because we're guessing. Like you should not have to guess what the all is lost moment is, like the lowest point for your character your reader shouldn't be wondering if this is the lowest point. It should be really clear, really obvious. Chronologically, the whole bit in the car where she finds out she's pregnant, that happens well before the first scene of the movie. So in Cheryl Strayed's story, the hike is actually the resolution. And the way they've portrayed it isn't strong enough to hold a two-hour film. Now, in the B story, the flashbacks, a really um, effective technique is to have the B story also moving chronologically and working its way up through time until it meets the A story at some point. You see that in a lot of books and a lot of films. It works really well. Here in Wild, the B story is not chronological, so we we're not sure which event is happening in what order. And it's very confusing. And I just want to say, I was tracking those sandals for most of the movie. (laughs) So the opening, one of the opening scenes is very close to the beginning of the movie. Cheryl's boot falls down, apparently irretrievable. And we think, oh my God, what is she going to do? She she only has one boot. And then she throws the second boot. You're like, what are you going to do? Very quickly, we have the scene where she's setting out on the hike and we see sandals on the outside of her pack. 
So I was tracking those sandals. I thought, does she lose them somewhere along the way? Which would up the ante, right? It would escalate the, the stakes for her. Or does she still have them? Well, it turns out she still had them. So yeah, her boots went down over the ravine. All she had to do was take the sandals out and off she went. And they're not just, you know, the flip-flops you buy at the dollar store. These are hiking sandals. They're designed to take that beating. So it's, you know, we're set up to think that this is going to be a real major problem. Nah, it's an inconvenience. When she gets to the next stop, you know what she does? Uses the phone, calls the company, presto magico, a whole new pair of boots shows up. Anyway, I could go on and on and on, (laughs) but I'm beating a dead horse here now. Uh, You all get the picture. Uh, Melanie, what's your action step for today? (laughs) So my action step this week is pretty simple. And after having a week of thinking about forces of antagonism and particularly watching three stories where it doesn't really work well, I want you to ask yourself, what is your protagonist's greatest fear? And then does your antagonist force your protagonist to face that fear? And if they do, then yay. If not, then you may need to look at that. Well, that wraps it up for this week and for this season. That means that next week, Melanie and I will be doing a roundup of everything we've learned in the past 10 weeks about the Heroes Gift Expressed and Forces of Antagonism. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. If you'd like to find out more about Melanie, visit melaniehill.com.au or visit her on Facebook at Melanie Hill Author. And remember, story theory does not have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Have fun.